don't change our behaviour, by the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So do we want a system of anarchy? And that's what we probably have at the moment. And they estimate that there's about 40.3 million people in some form of modern slavery. There is no single industry not touched by this issue. Definitely racists have been very good at using the internet. There's been a shift in thinking about who counts as a terrorist and there are currently terrorist laws being used against white nationalists. Where people's lives are being destroyed, that to me is enough to say something needs to be done here. I'm Dr. Susan Carlin and welcome back to What Happens Next. This is the third and final episode in our series on modern slavery. As you heard in previous episodes, there are a lot of challenges when it comes to tackling the really complex issue of modern slavery. But from a consumer perspective, there actually are plenty of changes we can do to help reduce it. So in this episode, we'll find out what individuals can do to drive change. Modern slavery researcher Laura Vidal has some great practical tips we can all use to help reduce our slavery footprint. Hi, I'm Laura Vidal. I'm a PhD candidate completing a PhD in criminology at Monash University and my area of research is focused on Australia's response to forced marriage, defined in Australia as a form of modern slavery. For the last 10 years, I have supported women, girls, men and families who've experienced trafficking and slavery in Australia and overseas. And I currently work as a strategic project manager for Good Shepherd Australia, New Zealand. Laura Vidal, welcome to the podcast. Imagine I'm an individual and I get the sense that maybe exploitation is, is occurring in a workplace. A staff member might say something to me in a certain situation that I think, oh, geez, I think this person might be being exploited. Because it can happen in Australia. This isn't just something that happens far away. What should we do? What's the right thing to do in that situation? It is absolutely undeniable that trafficking and slavery happens in Australia and it happens in all kinds of ways um, and in all kinds of industries. And when Australia first introduced its legislation, it was very, very centrally focused on the sex industry. And then as uh, we learnt more about it and the law changed in 2013 where we introduced a forced labour offence, it started to bring some visibility to some more commercial industries that, you know, everyday people might have exposure and access to. Uh, the, the thing about individual action, if identifying somebody in exploitation, it's a very, um, you need to take, you know, some considerable caution around that and, by no means, you know, sort of promoting any sort of vigilantism around identifying exploitation in a, in a workplace because essentially the person who may be exploited still needs to be able to make an informed choice about what their next steps are. Mm -hmm. uh, the response in Australia is um, heavily led by a criminal justice response and the people who are primarily responsible for investigating trafficking and slavery crimes are the Australian Federal Police. So people can absolutely contact the federal police if they are, um, you know, have some information or are concerned about somebody's safety. Naturally, if it's an imminent danger kind of situation, triple zero and a follow-up call to the AFP is, you know, really appropriate. Um, and the other thing would, I guess, to be to have some information about what the actual indicators of exploitation are because there are a, there is a difference between what's a, a bad job and what is actually slavery and the difference is the freedom to leave and so you need to be really 
tuned into what the actual um, what the actual indicators of that are, and they're things like you know being forced to work through violence or threats or excessively long hours that you're not being paid for, you can't freely leave your workplace, those kinds of things that, you know, restrict somebody's freedom essentially. Um, and then really trafficking and slavery presents as a narrative. Um, you can't look at any of these indicators in isolation. So it's a very sensitive and needs to be carefully managed situation. But in saying that, in my time supporting um, victims of trafficking and slavery in Australia, we did receive referrals to our service from people who had simply asked the question, is this a good place to work? And the person felt safe enough to say, well, no, actually it isn't. This is what I'm experiencing and I need some help. Mm. Um, and that has been, you know, a situation that I have encountered. And then the other situation that I've encountered as well is, somebody watching survivor advocates or other people sharing their story through the media and being in, in a lounge room. So, for example, a domestic worker who generally wouldn't have access to anything um, because they're in a suburban home that nobody knows they're there, yeah. um, might see something on the television and say, hold on a minute, that's my life, that's my situation. Mm. Um, this, you know, so it absolutely happens. So I guess the kind of two takeaways would be, understand the indicators of exploitation and making sure that it's not just a bad job that somebody can leave um and the second thing is to be able to you know safely refer that person to the federal police knowing that that's what they want because the last thing that we want to do is really strip that person who's already experiencing you know a reduction in their power of their agency to make that choice about what's next for them mm. um, and so it's really important to also um, refer to some other specialist NGOs so if you are concerned there are specialist NGOs that you can just call up and chat about what you've learnt and they can help guide you through that and they're things like the Salvation Army runs a trafficking and slavery safe house, Anti-Slavery Australia runs a legal service and the Australian Red Cross delivers um, Australia's support program so any of those NGOs would take a call and help you step through what it is that you've identified that you might be concerned about. Okay some great practical tips there while we're on the practical uh, train what what are some things that individuals can do if they want to avoid contributing to slavery you said it can be really difficult to know when we buy a product are there things that we can do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's some good apps. Uh, good on You is a really great app which is focused on the fashion industry and it rates brands around their impact on people, plants and animals. So if you download that when you're in the store, you can search the brand and it will kind of give you a rating as to how well that brand's performing and the issues that you care about. So I'd definitely give that a download. Uh, I'd also jump on and check out the fashion revolution in Australia and that's a really practical campaign around, um, you know, engaging in the fashion industry around ethical um, decision making. Look for the fair trade certification and logo um, whilst you're purchasing goods like tea, coffee and chocolate. It's on there. Um, it will say fair trade. 
on the packaging and it's increasingly becoming available in supermarkets. So make that choice over another choice. Um, there are other couple of great websites. Um, there's the slaveryfootprint.org, which can map you through particular product supply chains so you can make informed choices about purchasing. Um, and there's enslaverynow.org, which does a similar thing. So there's lots of sort of online platforms to do your research. And, and the other thing I would say is, you know, check out organisations or brands' um, sustainability and ethical procurement policies. And if they don't exist, ask the question um, of them and say, you know, I'm really interested in purchasing this product, but I want to know the answers to these questions and then make those decisions. One of the things that I would sort of caution around, however, is, you know, and it's just a little note to think about is, and that's around boycotting um, certain things and, and to think carefully about boycotting because generally if we learn about something really bad, we kind of go, oh, we're not going to purchase from that brand anymore. That's shocking. But what underlies that essentially is work that might be being undertaken, obviously in less than ideal conditions, but it is still work that people are engaged with. And when you take that away entirely, it actually makes the situation worse for them. And there's some actually really great um, research in that space that looks at the um, implications of boycotting on the producer themselves, the people that we think we're protecting by no longer purchasing from there. So the alternative to that is actually proactively engaging and putting consumer pressure on the brand and company to do better and to provide better conditions for the people that are working and supplying goods to them. Mm, that's a very important distinction, I think. Um, yeah. Because yeah. boycotting can actually have these terrible unintended negative consequences from what you're saying and actually end up doing more harm than good, whereas contacting right. a business or a brand and saying, I love your pants, um, please mm. would you consider making them fair trade or I'd love to know more about what you're doing to, to support your workers. That would be a more Absolutely. positive way. Yeah, and it has a more positive and uh, longer-term impact on both the workers as well as the brand and the consumers. So um, we don't want to be creating situations where uh, people are losing whatever livelihood it is that they have because that would be significantly um, disadvantageous for um, the, the workers themselves. Mm. I, I imagine implementing these fair trade rules must be really difficult. I, I remember speaking to some um, garment factory workers in Cambodia, actually, um, and saying, you know, I, I've heard now that there's been some new rules implemented and so you are, you get the, the minimum wage has been raised. That must be a good thing. And they said, well, unfortunately, the problem is now our bosses just tell us we have to make more per hour because we have to be paid more. So it must be a very complicated thing to try to um, improve without it being undercut. How do you get around that? Yeah, look, it's the question of the day, to be honest. Um, and, you know, the more standards you sort of introduce, um, workers do say the harder it is to actually um, navigate that. And, you know, things like fair trade certification gives people the right to unionise, for example, because in many countries it's illegal to unionise. But workers cannot organise around their own rights without um, facing uh, repercussions for that. So then we will never know. So, you know, those workers that you spoke to, um, 
you know, unless you're going and engaging with them and understanding what are the practical implications of these decisions that are being made away from you, um, you'll never know. And so I think the really important thing is to support workers in their place to organise and to be part of consultations around what standards mean for them and to understand, well, when they're introduced, what are the implications of that? Um, because if they don't work, we need to do something else. And so uh, we often forget, actually, about the workers at the bottom of the supply chain. Um, and we really need to be doing much better about that, you know, kind of cross-regional um, consultation with workers and support them to organise around their own rights without repercussions. Laura, this is absolutely fascinating, but more importantly, very practically useful. I, yes. I feel like there is there are things we can do. It doesn't all seem entirely hopeless, which is uh which It's is not a- entirely hopeless. And the more people get on board and the more people ask these questions, the more the movement gets um you know, gets legs and, and it's not just a small pocket of noisy people saying the same thing. You know, it has to become a mainstream movement, it has to be a question that people ask. Um and, and if we can all start doing that, it really will help build some, you know, accountability. And look, there are way more complicated things that businesses and academics and lawyers and everybody is doing to kind of get underneath all of this. But for your everyday person, having awareness that modern slavery happens, not just in the products that they purchase, but in Australia, is really important. And having some handy tips, um, you know, on an app, in your phone, in your notes about what you do if there's something you're worried about and acting on it could change somebody's life. So I think it's really important conversation to have. Laura Vidal, thank you so much. You're welcome. As with so many of these complex global challenges, we've found government and industry have to play a role. Kimberly Cole, economist, Monash alumna and risk expert, has been helping companies understand and act on modern slavery in their supply chains for more than a decade. She spoke to us from her base in Hong Kong, where she is global head of sales at Link Global. And she gave us some advice on what businesses can do to manage what's emerging as a major risk factor for many corporations. Hi, I'm Kimberly Cole. I am the global sales director for Link Global. We are an expert network and knowledge platform, head office down in Hong Kong. Previously, I was with Thomson Reuters for almost 30 years as I joined them straight out of Monash University after completing my economics degree. I am also known as Chief Risky Woman and I have a podcast called Risky Woman Radio. And Risky Woman is all about connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance. You're a specialist in risk. How risky is it for businesses not to address slavery in their supply lines? Obviously, you know, there's a lot of risk, different risks to businesses, but um, regardless of it, you know, clearly not being um, the right thing to have slavery in your supply chain. And just like um, environmental impact, which I think if you look at what's going on with the way that, you know, the attention that even boards give to the environmental issues or the way that they measure and track and look at their environmental impact and the um, and the way that's approached. Slavery is another one of those 
you know, highly reputational um, issues that needs to be addressed and it's and it should be seen as a very big risk to the business as it is just really um, you know seen as both by your consumers as well as by the employees and I think um, you know that's where as well no one wants to work for a company that you know seems to be doing the wrong thing you know added up one of the first people to put in place um, a, a person who was you know solely identified with you know trying to address the problems or or any issues of exploitation in their supply chain but i think now if you look at you know many companies they've got ethical sourcing and sustainability people and you know um in australia there's some fabulous um fabulous companies that have you know really knowledgeable people in those places so you know cotton on um, there's a lady by the name of Sonia Rand, another another Monash graduate, um, who I went to uh, Cambodia with on a on a Hagar um, human rights tour, and she's done you know a lot of fabulous work at both Coles, um, looking at all of their supply chains and the way they operate, and now Cotton On. So I think the focus is certainly there now um, for both Australian companies and obviously more globally. And a lot of that comes down to, of course, regulation. And, you know, that's when regulation can be a benefit. So, obviously, the UK introduced the Modern Slavery Act in 2015, and Australia introduced their own Modern Slavery Act um, in December 2018. And so now that that uh, requirement is there, obviously, it means that companies have to take more notice. And so I think that was a huge achievement, especially for Australia to... Um, you know, implement that Modern Slavery Act. And there was a lot of fabulous people, including, you know, Walk Free, who did uh, amazing work on that, but many others as well um, in, in Australia, you know, pushing to get that through. I want to end by asking you what steps individuals can take to reduce uh, their reliance, even inadvertent, on modern slavery, but also what can businesses do? Yeah, look, I think there are many... Um, you know, many, many things that, that individuals and businesses can do. Um, I think the first one is really, you know, educate yourself. Educate yourself as a, as a community, as, as a consumer as to, you know, where are the high-risk areas and what, what you, um, what, you know, the potential impact that you're having through supporting that. There's a really good um, app that says, that's called slaveryfootprint.org and it's, um, it starts with how many slaves work for you, which is a bit, um, you know, <laughs> shocking, but it's a very interesting little um, process to walk through. Um, but yes, the educating yourself, listening to the experts. There's so many people out there. I mean, in Australia, Walk Free is brilliant and they have done a fantastic job with getting, you know, consistent data that everyone now sort of relies on. So their website's excellent. Um, you know, obviously, Liberty Asia, Liberty Global and Mekong Club that I mentioned are very Hong Kong-based institutions, but they're always, always doing, you know, talks here. There is Slavery Australia um, in, in, in Australia, and there's many other institutions who are doing some fantastic, um, uh, you know, educational series and, and just their websites as well have some excellent information. I mean, I think as employees, especially if you're in a high-risk industry where you know that there's difficulty in supply chains, I think, you know, you can 
speak up and add pressure and, you know, in many cases maybe that is to be a whistleblower. Um, and then I think, you know, whatever skills you've got, you've got the opportunity to apply those. So if you're a lawyer, obviously you can get involved and use the law and the regulations. If you're a journalist, you can write about it. But maybe it's just time or maybe it's just money that, you know, you've got that you can, um, you know, get involved. And some of that might be the way that you invest, you know, that increasingly people are looking at much more environmental, social and governance issues around where they will place their, their investment dollars. And I think that's a, a very good way, um, very good way to start. And I mean, if you want to under, you know, if you want to sort of look at the problem, there's a there's a film that's just been released um, called Buoyancy in Australia. It's up for several awards. It's about a, a Cambodian boy who is um, uh, trafficked into um, slavery and the fishing industry. Um, and so I'd recommend you go and see that to sort of really, you know, see the the the, the problem. Um, uh, as it, you know, is told in that story, and and then you know, hopefully that disturbs people into action. And I'm I'm hoping to show that film here in uh, Hong Kong early in the new year. Kimberly Cole, thank you so much for your time, and particularly for joining us from Hong Kong. Some fantastic advice and serious food for thought there. All the resources we mentioned will be linked on our website, lens.monash.edu slash whathappensnext. The Slavery Footprint quiz we talked about earlier is at slaveryfootprint.org. And if you take it, I think you'll be surprised to discover just how many slaves are actually working for you. Special thanks to our guests today, Laura Vidal and Kimberly Cole. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on our next episode of What Happens Next. What Happens Next.